Welcome to the GRF On The Go podcast. The subject matter experts at GRF CPAs and Advisors created this podcast to offer insights on current topics, as well as new ideas and best practices that your team can apply today. This podcast was originally presented as a live webinar. CPE information provided during the podcast is no longer valid, but if you're interested in watching the video version of this session or accessing the slide deck, visit our website at grfcpa.com forward slash events. Enjoy the episode and remember to subscribe for future content. Good morning, everyone. I want to welcome everyone for participating in today's webinar, Current Sales Tax and Use Compliance Troubles and How to Manage Them. My name is Dick LaCastro, and I'm the uh, Director of Nonprofit Tax at uh, GRF, and I will be today's session moderator. So today I'm pleased to have Karen Cirillo, uh, CPA tax consultant, um, who is a state and local tax specialist, former Big Four uh, partner. Uh, and these days, Karen runs her own consulting business. And I'm gonna jump in uh, next to give you the uh, agenda here uh, for today's topics. So a uh, little background before I turn it over to Karen. Um, you know, we last did this webinar in 2019, and we'll talk about the Wayfair case, which kind of changed the landscape, uh, and you'll see some references to Wayfair as we go through. Um, Wayfair case came out in 2018, which caused states to, uh, and, and changed the idea of nexus from the historical uh, physical presence uh, nexus to something else, and we'll talk about that in, in some more detail. That happened in 2018, so we did the the last webinar in 2019, then COVID hits and COVID, the impact of COVID and working remotely can also have an impact on organizations nexus. So we thought this would be a good time to not only discuss uh, a little bit about the impact of the Wayfair decision, but the current landscape on sales tax and sales tax nexus. And also, you know, some tips about how you can assess your possible risks and liabilities and some, some helpful things to do if you think um, you may have some issues in how you start evaluating them. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to Karen. Thank you, Karen. Thanks, Dick. Happy to help. Happy to be here. Good morning, everybody. Yeah, as uh, Dick said, um, I am a state tax specialist, and I have been for over four decades. It's amazing how things have uh, grown in the area in state sales taxes, income tax, and all of the rest. It really is a full-time job. And if we were all together in a conference room for a seminar, I would start by asking for a show of hands. How many people, I would say, are in the audience because you hate sales taxes, they're too complicated, but you know you have to deal with them, but that doesn't make you hate them any less. On the other hand, I'd be asking if there's anybody here because yes, it's complicated, but you like the idea of your employer appreciating you for what you're doing, convincing them that you can manage it and you can keep them out of trouble with a reasonable amount of work. I do expect that there are probably some of each of you or some combination of the two there today. So what we wanted to do today is as Dick says, update from the last time we did one of these seminars because a lot has happened since. And we want to talk about some of those current issues and ideas and hopefully 
make things feel a little bit more manageable for you by the end of the day. So yeah, we wanna talk about the fact that, and I see in our registration that we have some commercial, what I'll call commercial businesses, you know, regular income tax and sales tax uh, businesses, as well as quite a lot of nonprofit uh, clients in, in the audience. And so we're going to focus on things and why sales taxes apply to everybody, including nonprofit organizations who are income tax exempt at federal and even state level, and why there are some special sales tax things to think about for nonprofits, as well as all of the things that apply to both commercial entities and, and the nonprofits. Um, as Dick said, a lot of things have changed. There is a growing and on a monthly basis, growing list of things that the sales want, uh, that the states want to be imposing sales tax on. Think the digital world that we're in and so many of those things that are now taxable. We're going to talk about a few of those. And, you know, those couple of things to try to whet your appetite and maybe jog some thoughts in your mind as to why today is important to you. And then get into the, well, what's important to you? How do you figure out which states you have to worry about, about the things that I've just talked about, about what's taxable in terms of nexus? And what did uh, Wayfair do to us uh, with the definition of nexus, meaning who is uh, um, responsible in which states? How do you identify which states you have to worry about? And I will say this multiple times today. The concept of nexus, meaning which states have the power to tax you because you have enough contact with those states, the nexus rules that Wayfair changed are what we call economic nexus. But if you have physical presence in the state, you very much first still have to pay attention to the sales tax rules in those states where you have physical presence, regardless of what the Wayfair case and economic nexus does to you. Uh, again, more on um, special issues for uh, the many of you who are nonprofit organizations who are with us today. And then, as Dick said, some um, ideas on how to make the risk analysis, the liability analysis, uh, as easy and helpful as possible, and then some ideas for how we go through it. So um, with that, let's get into some of the details, starting with those of you, many of you who are with us today who are nonprofit um, organizations. Yes, sales tax canon does apply to you the same way it does to a regular business, a commercial entity. Why is that? That's because the income tax exemption, that determination letter that you get from the IRS, many states do follow that for income tax exemption for your, uh, your exempt operations but it almost never confers any sales tax exemption for you on the things that you sell. Yes, a lot of states, and I will emphasize not all states, surprisingly, not all 46 sales tax states um, have an exemption even for the purchases that you make for your exempt purpose. Um, some do, but even in those states where you have an exemption on things that you buy, there are very, 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 let me say it again, very few exemptions across the country for uh, sales tax on the things that you sell. So things like um, there are some uh, exemptions for things like sales at thrift stores. A few states have uh, rules that you don't have to charge sales tax on things that you sell at a fundraiser, you know, those silent auction kind of things. But those are very, very few few and far between. 
So the bottom line is, even if you are a 501c3 organization that has an income tax exemption, and even in states where you have an exemption for things that you buy, you likely do not have an exemption from charging sales tax on things that you sell. And you will hear me say this a hundred times today, each state differs with respect to what their rules are for exempt entities and what uh, goods and services are subject to tax. And so we've got to look at every every detail there. Karen, we had a we had a question, and this goes to your point about where there's often confusion, I think, on clients about purchases versus sales. And, and we're most often looking at the impact on the sales of, of items and, and whether or not those those things are typically subject to sales tax. But on the purchases, the question was: can a van that's purchased by a nonprofit organization be exempt from sales tax? And I'm I'm assuming two things. One is it's being used and it's in furtherance of their exempt purpose, for example, food delivery, something like that. And secondly, I'm, that it's going to depend on, on what state it's in. But just generally speaking, if you have thoughts on that. There you go. Yeah. Yes, it depends on which state we're talking about. And the subsidiary of that statement is it depends on how that state in general taxes vehicles. Um, for example, some states do have a what I'll call a regular sales tax on vehicles. And so that uh, sales tax code may have an exemption for that van if it is exclusively or predominantly used in your exempt purpose. Um, however, there are some other states that um, carve out vehicle taxes and, and have a special vehicle excise tax. Um, and in a lot of those, they don't have the equivalent of the sales tax exemption that might be in the regular statute section for a regular sales tax. So. Bottom line is you kind of look at the state. Is it a regular sales tax that your exemption might apply on purchases or is it a motor vehicle special tax and does that special tax have the exemption or not? In this case, they, the follow-up indication was that it was in Maryland, but I don't know. Um, you know, Maryland, we don't have time to get into the specifics, but you may know that off the top of your head. Maryland has a special vehicle um, tax and the exemptions are very weird. <laughs> So it's not, it, it, the answer to Maryland is it's not your general sales tax, um, it's the special vehicle tax weirdness. Okay, very good, thanks. Yeah, and as we're going through things, yes, um, as you can see, uh, Dick is monitoring the, the chat and the questions for us. So we will have time at the end of the presentation for questions that you've accumulated, but if you have anything that's burning while we're talking, um, please do put it in the chat box and uh, Dick will either accumulate them for the end or he'll stop me if it's something that needs to be addressed there. The other thing that I need to mention when we're talking about exempt organizations, and I mean, you know, tax, uh, income tax exempt organizations, when we're comparing the income tax um, determination letter from the IRS that most, that, that most states follow versus the fact that only uh, a portion of the states have a sales tax exemption, even there, there's a subset of the statement. The exemptions for purchases for things that you're buying to uh, conduct your exempt purpose, that generally only applies to 501c3 entities using the Internal Revenue Code section for the IRS um, exemption determination letters. So in other words, um, as the sales tax exemption where it does apply in some states almost always is only your, your charitable, educational, religious organizations. And so things like 501c4s, 501c6s, you know, those types of entities almost never have a sales tax exemption, even on purchases, much less on sales, all right? So tax exempt organizations, 
Um, yeah, I, I just uh, probably scared a handful of you about the sales tax on things that you sell. The other thing, as Dick mentioned, that we're dealing with in terms of current issues is what is now sales taxable? Sales taxes started decades ago taxing mostly sales of physical stuff, tangible personal property. The new developments that we've been seeing, and they are escalating month by month in every single state, is how the states are dealing with the digital world. And so things are now being subject to tax that we never had to think about in sales tax. And so this is some of the information we want to be putting some bees in your bonnets today about what's going on, because my sentence here, where are the states heading? It's going to be more of it. The states are trying to catch up to the 21st century and tax more of these things that are in the digital world because, you know, let's face it, uh, so many things that we used to buy in tangible form and we paid sales tax when we bought them at the cash register, books, CDs, tapes, movies, uh, you know, things like that. We paid sales tax and didn't think anything of it. But today, what do we do? We download those onto our computer. And so the states are in a position of needing to replace the sales tax that they used to get when I bought it at store uh, and get that sales tax when I'm downloading it onto my computer. So some of those things are what's absolutely critical. Um, you know, again, the uh, used to be just sales of tangible property, but now the digital world and the electronic delivery of so many things. And the other nuance to this is it's not just stuff that used to be in tangible form that's now in electronic form. It's also services. Um, more and more services are being subjected to tax, including services that are conveyed electronically, because that's another way for the states to be getting more revenue that, that they want and, and, and that they need. Now, to, to make this come home, I use an example that's very personal. I've been doing this for over four decades. When I started in the tax world, I had a room called a library. And it had shelves and shelves and shelves of books that had all of the state tax codes and court cases and decisions and regulations and all those kinds of things. And when I paid for those books, when I paid for the person who updated them every week with new pages, I paid sales tax because it was tangible. But what do I do today? What do we do today? We log on to a service that gives me the equivalent of being able to see what used to be in all of those books. Um, but it also it provides me services that I didn't used to get. Yes, I'm reading the statutes, the regs, the court cases on my screen now instead of in a book, but those services have also um, evolved to do more for me than what I used to be able to do in a book. They, they, they allow me to use a search function. They allow me to use a category function. And so some of those are crossing the line between, well, how much of it is the equivalent of those books that I used to buy versus how much of it is that entity now, that vendor now providing me a professional service. And those are some of the things that we're dealing with and the states are dealing with. I put a note in here that while we're talking about goods and services, there are these handful of states, Hawaii, New Mexico, South Dakota, and West Virginia, where a lot of the rules are a lot simpler and a lot more basic because these states tax almost everything, including most services, including accounting services, professional services. So when you're thinking about those four states, think about, oh, my issues are even a longer list in those, those states. So what is the message today? When we start talking about some of these details, be thinking about how what I'm discussing here 
is maybe applying to what you are doing in your organization um, and whether any of these things fit into possible sales tax research that needs to be done as to what you're doing not, might be taxable because one of the new things we're seeing is a lot of our clients, including our nonprofit organizations, are today doing things in electronic format that used to not be taxable, but today is taxable in a lot of places. So here's just one handy dandy list I have for you of the states that are now taxing some form of digital goods, either by specifying the following kinds of things, you know, electronically delivered books, electronically delivered music, da -da -da, specific lists of things, or by changing their definition of tangible personal property that's in their sales tax law to say these digital things are the equivalent of tangible personal property because I can see them on my computer is the theory. Um, but here's a list of states. And I'm telling you, um, this is soon going to be every state. But here's, here's the list for current states. And I've got a couple of examples for you. Um, and being very close to home, since we're located in the D.C., Maryland, Virginia area, Maryland and D.C. currently do have laws in the books that tax a lot of what we will call digital products, the electronic version of things that used to be tangible property, but also the electronic version of new things that have been invented. Virginia, surprisingly, currently does not have that in their law. Um, and I've got a couple of examples for you just to show you the breadth of what I'm talking about in terms of digital goods that you might have to be thinking about. Are you doing these and are these taxable? Um, D.C., um, I didn't put a slide in here for that, but um, D.C. does, in fact, have a, um, a, a, a tax on the equivalent of, um, of information services that's sort of kind of in the digital goods category, but it's slightly different. Um, and I'll get into a couple of those in a second, um, but starting with my home state of Maryland. This is just to show you the breadth of the approaches that a lot of the states are taking. Maryland statute that went into play a couple of years ago is a lot of electronic jargon it's in all honesty not as simple as what some of the eight, uh, some of the other states have uh, with you know electronically transferred books electronically transmitted music um, it, it, they got real technical a work that results from the fixation of a series of sounds that are transferred electronically you know blah 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 so you can see here that the gist was trying to get at things that used to be tangible property and sales taxable uh, they're now electronic and so the state wants that sales tax. One of the interesting things about Maryland statute is that the law never uses the word software. All of us in the 21st century know what computer software is. <laughs> the Maryland legislators chose for some reason not to include that word in the law. However, with how they define digital codes, the controller's office came up with the conclusion that computer software is a taxable digital product. Um, it did cause a lot of problems in the beginning. Uh, computer software companies were saying, I don't see this anywhere in the law, but the controller's office has issued tax tip 29 that clearly says that computer software is taxable. Here's another example of how complicated this can get. Um, we, we needed to have some amendments to even the first bill because the first bill would have taxed what we're doing today. 
Dick, if you were charging all of our participants today a fee for looking at our seminar, Maryland's original bill would have said that that was taxable. So we had to get some uh, amendments to the bill to say, no, you know, live instruction, even if there's a charge for it, is not considered a taxable digital product. On the other hand, Dick, you said at the beginning to our participants that the recording of today's seminar is going to be available to them. If you charge them for, and I understand there's no charge, if, if you were to charge your participants to view that video, Maryland says that is taxable, Dick. GRF does have to charge sales tax on what you are charging your participants to view that video because Maryland says, well, that's the equivalent of Karen having recorded this and put the tape on sale at Walmart. And so we want the sales tax on there. So we needed to get some of those educational uh, exemptions in there that live education programs are not, but the taped version can be if there's a charge for it. Well, and speaking of that, we had a question about a computer-based licensing exam. So it used to be when you took a licensing exam, you went to a place, you sat in a room and you took it. Now they can be administered, obviously, um, you know, uh, computer-based. Would that type of thing typically be um, subject to tax? I would say that an exam, uh, I'm equating it to the way, um, uh, you know, the professional exams that I'm familiar with, that there is some level of electronic monitoring that's going on while the candidate is taking that. And so I would hope that I would get the answer from the controller's office that that fits into the exemption. It's not the equivalent of um, watching a video that I could have bought on tape. But the question brings up another level of how complicated all of this is and how we have to look at the words in the specific statutes and regulations um, from each of the states. All right. Um, and then professional services um, so that when I am um, using a computer to do research, when my colleagues are using a computer to prepare a tax return, those are still the, the true object is this professional service. Then we got into some other interesting things in Maryland. Again, just to show you how complicated some of these are. When we were talking about the controller's decision that, well, Maryland says digital codes are, are taxable and therefore all software is taxable, the business community went back and uh, was successful in getting two more exemptions. And so, you know, that's another reason we have to look at every state because the words describe what's taxable, but then there also might be some good language to look at for what's exempt. Um, the concept of when a company is hiring an advertising firm and the company is going to be the owner of that concept that the advertising and marketing firm created, that digital item uh, of the, the marketing brochures or the concepts, um, that's a business uh, tax, uh, a business um, function. And so the legislature saw fit to say, well, that should be exempt, even if it is in electronic form. And then the other thing that was absolutely critical to the business community, um, and the second one about computer software or software as a service that is part of your enterprise platform, meaning the programs that um, all interact, you've got multiple programs that interact to form your your platform, your accounting, your marketing, your email, all of that stuff together. Um, this uh, invokes the concept of business to business 
transactions where you don't want pyramiding of, well, we're charging sales tax on this, and then the people who are buying it are charging sales tax on what they sell. Um, and so enterprise software, enterprise platform software is exempt in Maryland now um, after the business community got together and got that done. I mentioned DC. Um, DC was one of the, uh, I'll call it later comings to, although Maryland was very, very recent, just a couple of years ago. Um, DC was only a few years ago um, in 2019. Um, prior to that, DC specified that digital goods were not subject to tax, and then they passed a statute saying they are. Um, and here you go, an example of a simpler definition, I think, of what they want to have tax on. Digi digital audiovisual works, digital audio works, your music, digital books, et cetera. So DC now um, imposes sales tax on all of those things. But as I mentioned, the other state that we deal a ton with here in the Mid-Atlantic area of Virginia is still not on board with this, but uh, I'm certainly expecting that it, it will happen sometime soon. Um, and here is DC um, uh, elongating their definition of what audiovisual works are, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and the other thing is that, yes, DC does tax computer software uh, sold in any form, including electronically. That's, that's specifically in the regulations. So those are a couple of examples of how the states deal with it. And this is one of the areas that is causing the most trouble and one of the newest things, because while it's easier, I won't say easy, but easier to think about the equivalent of if I used to go to an office store and buy a box that had a disk with software on it and I would bring it home and plug it in. Okay, today the equivalent is I log on to the software vendor's website, I give them my credit card and they allow me to push a button and it downloaded, downloads my software. The, those two equivalents um, are easier to think about. But what about what we're calling SaaS? Software as a service that, you, you know, we sales tax folks have to talk to the IT folks to, treat, to understand all the different versions of what uh, computer services are. But SaaS, software as a service, has been commonly and simply defined by, for, for use by tax geeks as cloud computing, where the software isn't on my computer, it's hosted by the third-party vendor. But from my computer, I am able to access it remotely. So the question is, well, is that the same as me buying slash licensing the software and having it resident on my computer? In the old days, I would have bought a disk. Today, I would have downloaded it. But it's not on my computer. It's on my vendor's computer. Or is there some kind of professional service involved that, yes, I'm accessing the software, but is the vendor doing something to help me while I'm accessing that software? Those are the kinds of issues that we're dealing with. And a lot of the states um, are wanting to make it simple and say, if you are accessing computer software, even if it's not on your, your computer, if it's on your vendor's computer, we want to say that's the equivalent of you licensing the software. And so these states um, are currently taxing it. Um, I mentioned here Maryland, um, because a lot of uh, software as a service, if it is simply you accessing the software that's on another vendor's um, uh, site, um, but we do have exemptions for um, the enterprise software that I mentioned, and we still have uh, exemptions for customized software, meaning that you're buying the time and not just the service. So that's a troublesome issue. The other thing that I want all of you to be thinking about, um, because this is an ever-expanding area, and this is an area that particularly some of our nonprofit clients are getting into, 
And that is the handful of states that are taxing information services and data processing services. And some of this is really whether or not it's electronic. Some of these things in the old days were clearly uh, the information or data processing services that were reduced to paper form or disk form, and then the, the paper was transferred, um, including uh, some of the statutes are old enough to use the word mimeograph form. Uh, I'm not even sure that exists anymore, um, but some of the states have had these around for a long time. So if you are providing information services or data processing services and charging your customers for them, take a look at these states because you might have a responsibility for charging sales tax on those. And where do we have a few examples? Where um, this is where I um, get into, well, a lot of you are probably familiar with the fact that the, um, the DC sales tax statute has been um, charging uh, or wanting you to charge tax on information services for a long time. Um, their rule includes uh, it specifically things like if you are providing surveys or questionnaires, um, totaling questionnaire responses, they list a lot of professional things like real estate listings and things. The DC definition of taxable information services says if you are furnishing general or specialized news or current information by printed, here's that word again, mimeograph, electronic or electrical transmission, and this is interesting, or any other method now in use or which may be later devised. So they have predicted that even the ways we use electronics uh, to change things, uh, to, to transfer things, uh, their statute is going to cover it. So here's a couple of examples just to show you the breadth of these. And I use just a couple of examples, but know that this list here, where a lot of the states, the, this handful of states that are taxing information and data services, here are a handful of examples. Um, Texas has one of the broadest uh, definitions of both information services and data processing services. I've got the definitions up here or the lists up here on the slide for you. The processing of information for the purpose of compiling and producing or newsletters and financial market reports and information services. The thing about Texas is at least they have issued a lot of rulings where people have written in to say, is what I'm doing one of your taxable information services or data processing services? And so um, Texas has been quite helpful, but they have a pretty broad list of things that are subject to tax. But still, in today's world, uh, the statute needs to be looked at. New York is another one that for many, many years has imposed sales tax on information services. And here's the definition for you, collecting, compiling, or analyzing information, which a lot of our businesses are doing these days for their clients because a lot of clients want to outsource that, uh, that function. Um, the thing about um, New York, New Jersey, a handful of states is that they do say not taxable is the furnishing of information that is personal or individual in nature, meaning I as the buyer um, is the only one that can use that information. It's not going to be put into some kind of a report and sold to multiple customers. So those are just a couple of examples of the kinds of things that we need to be worried about now in this um, world where the states want to tax more services to get more revenue. Dick. 
Well, I think if we're done with this slide and the next slide, we have our first polling question. Um, so first polling question is, does this discussion make you think that your organization is selling electronically delivered digi or slash digital products and services that may be subject to tax? Uh, yes, no, or unsure. Okay, I will be interested to see the results of our polling question too. But for CPE purposes, we need to put it in there for another purpose. All right, so it looks like uh, uh, on that answer, we, uh, we've we got about 39% uh, say yes, 47% say no, and 14% are unsure. 14% are unsure. Okay, so we've got several dozen people who are impacted by something that we just said. All right. Now. Taking what we just talked about in terms of the kinds of things that the states are now subject to tax uh, and the new developments and the path that I think the states are heading on of more of the same of what we just talked about, how do we determine which states I have to worry about? Where do I have nexus? Nexus, by definition, is the amount of contact that you have with the state that allows that state to impose their laws on you. And this is where we get into the massive change that the Wayfair ruling uh, by the US Supreme Court uh, threw into our analysis. I have a lot of slides in here about the Wayfair case. Um, I am expecting that it's familiar to a lot of you. And so I'm just gonna breeze through it as a refresher. Uh, but I left all the detail slides in here for your reference for later if you need to convince uh, other people at your organization on some of the details and, and if, or if you want to refresh. Um, but let's go through it pretty quickly. Wayfair. Prior to the Wayfair case, there was what we called the physical presence rule for sales tax collection requirements. And that physical presence requirement had previously as then recently as 1992, been upheld by the U.S. Supreme Court in two other cases, in the Quill case and then prior to Quill, the National Bellis Hess case, and they're both listed in our slides, had said, the Supreme Court said, no, states, you can only require sales tax collection by businesses that have some kind of physical presence in your state, an office, an employee working in the state, uh, an inventory of goods stored in your state. Um, if you don't have that physical presence in those two cases were mail order companies who all they were doing was mailing catalogs, old fashioned catalogs, not electronic ordering, uh, but they were mailing catalogs into the states. The customer would fill out the catalog, mail the form back with a check to an out of state um, entity, the, the out of state seller. The U.S. Supreme Court said that was not enough physical presence for those states to say the company had to charge sales tax. That all changed with Wayfair, because in Wayfair, the state of South Dakota had said that the, let me get to it, um, South Dakota had tried to say, but in today's electronic age, the sales process is so much easier that we should be able to, at certain levels, require the seller to charge sales tax, even if they don't have uh, any kind of physical presence. And so, you know, as I said, we'll, we'll, we'll flip through a lot of this. Um, 
Noting here what Wayfair did was it changed the nexus rule. It didn't change the fact that physical presence still causes nexus. So if you have employees or some kind of physical location, you don't even have to look at these Wayfair tests that we're going to talk about. And it didn't change a lot of the other things, but it did change nexus and who can be required to charge sales tax. Um, the South Dakota law had been designed to challenge the old Quill ruling, the physical presence ruling, by saying we should be able to charge sales tax if a company has at least $100,000 of sales in our state or has at least 200 transactions in our state. That is what was upheld by the, uh, by the U.S. Supreme Court. Again, kind of flying through some of these, here are the names of the cases that predated Quill that used the physical presence test. Um, but now the um, Supreme Court had to go through listening to both sides that this would be a burden on interstate commerce if more states had to had the power to charge tax versus the states were saying we're losing millions of dollars. All of that led to the Supreme Court saying we are overruling our quill ruling. We think that we applied the wrong interpretation of the Commerce Clause of the U.S. Constitution. Um, even though this, uh, the states and the vendors have been used to 25 years of the physical presence rule, we don't care. We're changing it. You see the Latin word stare decisis, which means leave it as it is. Um, all of that was changed because the Supreme Court said we didn't do right when we issued the quill ruling. We're going to change that. Uh, they did leave the the what we're calling what they were calling the small business exemption. The court liked the fact that uh, that hundred thousand dollar limit was there. Important is the court also liked the fact that the state of South Dakota was part of the streamlined sales tax project, which go, which goal has as their goal the streamlined word make sales tax compliance simpler, uh, but. <laughs> It's not simple, uh, as simple as some people were convincing the, the court that it could be. So where we are is that even though Chief Justice Roberts um, disagreed with the majority, um, he said that, yes, things have changed, but we shouldn't be the ones who are changing it. We should leave the interpretation of the Commerce Clause of the U.S. Constitution up to Congress. It's Congress's role. Um, and so he would wait for Congress to change it, but he was in the minority in that. So where we are left with is that um, economic nexus means if you have sales into the state or and of a certain amount of revenue or a certain number of transactions, the Wayfair ruling of the U.S. Supreme Court says that uh, you can be required to charge tax. Dick, we have a question. So yeah, I, there was a question that came in earlier, and I think this is the right place to ask it. Um, and I think it's, it, it, it hits two things. One, the question in general, is, is it common for states to have a floor, i.e. the product uh, is subject to sales tax, but you sold less than X dollars in a period, so you don't need to charge a remit sales tax. So I could see that if you were selling outside a state where you had physical presence, um, that, that's where the $100,000 or whatever limitation might come in in that state because you didn't have enough transactions, or you didn't have enough dollar amount. But let's say you did have nexus. So I think that would be clear that there is a floor in states where you don't have physical presence. Is that correct? It is, absolutely. Okay. And we actually have a slide in a second that that um, lists uh, what, what that issue is. Okay. And then the second piece of it is, what if I do have nexus? And you mentioned some special events, some uh, some some fundraising events, but in general, would it be common for a state to have a floor where they say it's subject to tax, but if you don't sell more than X in a period, you don't have to remit. 
Okay, there's two aspects of that question, and I'm glad they this came up because it is important to um, to clarify. The first thing is the Wayfair rule, the economic nexus. If you have at least, uh, and we'll get into this, the hundred thousand dollars of sales into the state, only applies to those states where you don't have physical presence. So if you are selling in to customers in a state where you have an employee located, you have an office, you have a warehouse, et cetera, um, you already have physical presence and you're already required to charge sales tax to the customers in that state. If you don't have physical presence, that's where the floor comes in, where you have to look at, do you have the $100,000 of, of sales or, or not? So the question about... Um, if you're doing fundraisers, if you are attending uh, or you're attending um, conventions, et cetera, the question there is, well, is that enough physical presence? And that gets into a totally different rule outside of Wayfair. And that is, well, if I'm only in the state for one day attending a convention, is that enough physical presence for the state to say I have tax, uh, I have tax responsibility? Some states will say yes. Some states have a floor even for that and say, well, if you're here for three days, that's not enough physical presence. You know, so there's two aspects of how that question was presented. Okay. All right. Now, one other thing that's important, and I promise I do have a slide here, and then we're going to get to some ideas um, quickly. One of the other things that came after Wayfair that's different from Wayfair, but it still impacts how a lot of us are doing business, is this thing called the marketplace facilitator rule. And by now, every single state that has a sales tax does have a marketplace facilitator rule. And this is different because it deals with that third party. If you are selling your goods on a marketplace facilitator, a platform like Etsy, like eBay, a lot of others, that marketplace facilitator is the entity that is standing between you and the customer. They are facilitating your sale to the customer. In most cases, that facilitator is collecting the revenue and giving you the sales proceeds. The states have all passed these marketplace facilitator rules that said, forget about your nexus. If there is a marketplace facilitator who is conducting your sale, that marketplace facilitator is the one that we want the tax uh, to be collected and remitted to us in the state. The concept is that go-between person is handling the accounting, they're handling the cash. And so it's the one that the states want to say, well, it's easiest for us to get up, go after them. Um, the thing is that if you are using any of these platforms to sell your items, whether it's clothing, t-shirts with your logo on it, or mugs, or, uh, or whatever, um, in most states, you still have to file a tax return, but you report that your marketplace facilitator has, has collected the tax. So this is both something to be aware of if you are using marketplace facilitators. It's also something to think about when we're talking about how do we in, uh, implement compliance ideas because you might want to use a marketplace facilitator for selling your stuff so that they are the one that's responsible for doing all of the accounting for the sales tax, et cetera. So um, there's some other things here just to give you some ideas of what the states are saying. And some of this is still around. Um, can you imagine... Uh, that the states are saying, well, yeah, there are a lot of companies out there that don't hit the $100,000 threshold for having a charged tax, but our, uh, and so therefore our goal is to prove that they have physical presence in our state. Well, if it's a seller that plants cookies on a computer, that cookie, the cookies that are sitting on my computer is the same thing as the seller having physical presence in my state 
and therefore forgetting about the threshold under Wayfair, that physical presence via the cookie says that that seller has to charge sales tax in Maryland. A lot of these kinds of things are ideas that the states are coming up with, and some of them have um, needed less application because of Wayfair. Some of them are still around there because they want to catch the people who are not um, covered by, by Wayfair. There's also some things that the states um, wanted to have reports done, even if you weren't collecting the tax, and that's the Direct Marketing Association case. And so here's the gist of it, um, the thresholds. As a result of all of this that the states are doing, in our 2019 seminar, I had a list of all of the states and what the rules were. It boils down to today, think about it this way. Most of the states are using the threshold of, you have nexus and sales tax responsibilities in our state if you have one or uh, both of these items, or one or either of these items. Either $100,000 of revenue from customers in that state, or 200 transactions to customers in that state. That's what most of the states are doing. Now, one of the new things is that a few of the states are removing the $200 transaction rule and saying, ah, we're just gonna say if you have $100,000 of revenue in our state, because we were having a lot of uh, examples of 200 transactions that were each a dollar a piece. And people had to spend thousands of dollars to comply with filing sales tax returns in those states charging tax for a couple bucks. Um, so some of the states are removing the 200 transactions, but there are still some states that have it there. Um, and so the point being that this is when you have nexus if you meet one or the other of those tests. I list here that there are a handful of states um, that have seen fit to use a different number than the $100,000, $250,000 in a few states, $500,000 in a few states. Um, and, and some of them had effective dates all the way back to 2018. Some of them are more recent than that. Uh, as to when these rules took a play, uh, took uh, effect. So here, here's my caution again. How many times have I said this today? Remember, all of this applies only if you don't have physical presence, because if you have physical presence in the state, you don't even have to look at this. You have to look at your sales tax rules. All right. And then just a, a list of uh, Congress has been asked a few times to deal with the results of Wayfair, some of which were wanting to put it in the federal law, um, some of which were to overturn the Wayfair ruling and say use, use Congress's powers under the Commerce Clause of the Constitution to say, no, this isn't the rule that we want. We want it to be physical presence, but uh, I don't want to ask for a show of hands of how many people are guessing that Congress anytime soon is going to be dealing with the Wayfair case. I doubt it with everything else they got going on. All right. Another question, Dick. Okay, uh, now for our second polling question. Polling question number two, did Wayfair impact how you look at sales tax? And we'll see the results coming up. 73% uh, said yes, uh, five said no, and uh, three said unsure. Um, so that's, that's a pretty strong statement about how Wayfair has impacted the way, particularly not just for-profits, but non-profits look at that. And I, I want to go back to, oops, I guess I won't go back, but I'll mention this. Um, I can't emphasize enough, as I've tried to, that the Wayfair rules only apply if you don't have physical presence. I will tell you that I have had a number of projects for clients, and a lot of my colleagues who specialize in, specialize in state tax have also had a lot of projects 
where we start a project helping the client look at the states where they have Wayfair Nexus, only to find out as we're asking the facts that they had physical presence and there were a bunch of states where they should have been charging tax all along, even before Wayfair came. So I can't say enough how important it is to think both about the physical presence as well as, as the Wayfair Nexus. So how do we boil this down into something that's manageable? How do I assess the outstanding risk? Well, the first thing is where do I have Nexus? And I've tried to make this as, as simple as possible. Um, I do have a big spreadsheet that is a Nexus questionnaire that today is probably, I will, I will be upfront and say, it's probably more usable for those of you who are subject to income taxes in, in a bunch of states. Um, but for sales taxes, the question starting out is, where do I have Nexus? So again, where do I have physical presence? And remember that, that uh, it, one of the things we mentioned is how post-COVID um, things have changed. Physical presence is caused by, uh, you know, it's standard, you know, do I have an office in the state? Do I have a warehouse? Do I have store inventory? Do I have an, an employee working in the state, including telecommuting employees? Um, and it can get kind of dicey depending on what the employee does, but you have to start with, if I have an employee physically located in that state, either permanently teleworking, or even visiting. I have um, representatives who visit our members or our clients in other states, that's physical presence. And so some of that is nuanced uh, as we are moving into the teleworking world more and more um, as our COVID and post-COVID years um, happen. But the first question is, where do I have physical presence? And, and I clearly have to look at the sales tax rules in those states. For economic nexus, let's make it simple. Where are our customers? In which states are our customers? In well, where, what are the addresses of the uh, places where I'm shipping my goods or the addresses of the customers who are electronically accessing what I'm selling if it's sales taxable in those states? Um, and in, in those states, uh, how many, uh, in which of those states do I have the $100,000 or more? Knowing that you need to refer to my slide where there are a handful of states that use 250 or 500, but start with, Let's list all of the states where we ship, um, uh, where we have customers located that have, uh, we have $100,000 or more sales. And then for the bunch of states that still use the 200 transactions, which of the states where I have customers located, uh, do I have 200 or more transactions happening every year? And, and again, these are annual tests, the $100,000 of revenue, the 200 um, transactions. And then, as I said, look at um, whether, uh, you are dealing with the states that have a, a different rule than the $100,000 like California, where it's a half a million. So that's your nexus analysis. Where do I have physical presence? Where are my customers? And in which of those states where my customers are located, do I have the $100,000 of revenue or 200 transactions every year? It can get more complicated. Let's start with making it manageable. And then the next question is, do we sell services or goods that are subject to tax. The easy thing is if I'm selling t-shirts or mugs or books, tangible property, those are taxable everywhere in all 46 sales tax states. But in the categories that we talked about early on in our meeting today, are there some of those electronic things that are going on? And we also have to look at, well, we can start with the guess that it's taxable, but are there exemptions? Um, for example, am I selling educational materials to schools 
And the particular state where that school is located says that that is an, a non-taxable educational item. Might be in some states, might not be in others. We always have to look at, well, I'm selling something that I think might be taxable. Do I look at those states and see if there's any specific exemptions? For a lot of you, both commercial uh, businesses as well as nonprofits, are our customers themselves exempt? Um, do we have 501c3s that are buying my product or service for use in their exempt purpose? And if so, um, I don't charge them tax, but as long as I have a copy of their exemption certificate or their exemption number for the state where I am shipping the product. Now, remembering that all of those state th those rules differ too. So an entity may have an exemption in the state where they're headquartered, but if they have an office in a second location where they don't have an exemption, you may have to charge tax. So it's important to look at that, but do I have exempt customers and should I be getting those, I, I should be getting those exemption certificates. How long have we had Nexus in each state? That's going to add up uh, the amount of dollars that are at risk. If I haven't been charging sales tax on things that I'm currently finding out are in fact taxable. Um, do I have to go back to um, 2018 when some of these states started implementing Wayfair? Um, unfortunately, have I had physical presence even before 2018 and I should have been charging tax? And oops, uh, remembering that if I wasn't charging tax and I wasn't filing sales tax returns, there's no such thing as a statute of limitations. The state can come in and say, we want tax back to the first year that we can prove that you had a taxable transaction in our state. So. Um, how long have we had Nexus in the state, either via physical presence or Wayfair presence? And the Wayfair presence typically started in 2018. Um, and so we use this information to say, we'll add it all up to say, what is the estimated of tax that we owe? Looking at all the states for all the years that the states could come back at us, what's that amount? And then we evaluate that amount. Now, I note here that when we're looking at that amount, we recognize that there are business decisions to be made. The business decisions are what I call the entity risk level, the can I sleep at night level. If it's a couple bucks, do I go through the process of fessing up and going back to filing tax returns to 2018 and spending thousands of dollars to, of my own time or hiring a, a consultant to help? Um, or do I start doing it now and uh, understanding that I have that risk that's accumulating forever, but as each year happens, uh, the risk probably goes down. The other entity risk level is uh, what happened. Am, am I an entity that hates the idea of if the state decides to challenge me and put my name in the newspaper? I hate that. Those are the kinds of things that I'm thinking about at entity risk level. Um, Dick and his partners talked to me about the accounting materiality. Um, is it a number that's big enough that has to be on the balance sheet as a liability, but versus the states want it all. The states want every dollar. Now, let me finish here and then Dick's got a question. However, all of this mess, know that there is some good news in there, that we can take advantage of every state having what they call voluntary disclosure procedures. After I've evaluated what states are involved, how many dollars are involved, and I've made my entity can I sleep at night level that I want to go and fess this up to the states? Because in volunteering, the states will generally, almost always, not hit you with penalties. They want the tax and the interest, but they won't hit you with penalties. And they might even limit the number of years that you have to go back. 
Um, a lot of states limit it. Because you're volunteering, we will tell you to calculate tax for only the, the prior three years. There are a number of different states. But if the number is big enough, if the can I sleep at night level is tough, if the accounting materiality is tough, um, there is this voluntary disclosure procedure that the state in return for you volunteering, and they don't have to spend their audit time and resources, they will give you a shorter look back period and no penalties. So that is one way, to, one thing to think about as we're evaluating our outstanding risk. Right. And I know you've got one more slide, but I want to make sure we get to the last um, get to the last uh, polling question in, in Word as well, because we're we're coming up on the hour here, and I want to make sure everybody gets that um, done. But if you want to, okay, real fast, just a, a list of the compliance things we have to think about after we've analyzed our risk for prior years, and we've decided whether to um, do voluntary disclosures. We've decided how to get started filing. Here are some of the things to think about in terms of implementing compliance procedures. Um, we need internal accounting procedures. As I mentioned earlier, um, do we want to change to using a marketplace facilitator to send our uh, uh, to do our sales because that person will be responsible for sending the sales tax, collecting and sending the sales tax, and we won't have to do that. Should we engage? We, we don't want to use a marketplace facilitator, but there are several big ones that have been around for years and a lot of new ones after Wayfair. The outside service providers who will, will interconnect their software to your sales platform, tell your sales platform how much sales tax to charge based on the address of your customer. They will calculate the tax. They will accumulate it. They will prepare your tax return. They will then have a procedure with you to take the tax money out of your bank account and remit it for you. There are those outside service providers. You don't have to take this into, uh, into um, internal procedures automatically. Um, and the, 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 the important note that I have here is as you're thinking about your risk, as you're thinking about impl implementing compliance procedures, don't try to ignore it because you need to remember if you are selling taxable stuff, if you implement the procedures and you are charging tax to your customers, remitting it to the states, you are remitting your customer's money and your cost is the administrative cost of doing it. If you decide to hope that the states don't find you, if you decide to take the risk on yourself and not start charging tax and you're audited three or four years from now, my colleagues and I can count on one hand how many times the person who's been audited and assessed has been able to go back to their customers and saying, oops, four years ago, we forgot to charge you sales tax. Here's your bill for your sales tax. Please, please pay up. Never happens. So if you're audited and assessed, the money comes out of your pocket versus if you start charging tax, you're using your customer's money. So a lot of those kinds of things to think about um, in your risk analysis and compliance analysis. So the last polling question, uh, did you take away any actionable items from our discussion today? Yes, no, or unsure? Okay, and Dick, I guess we're out of time for questions, but if there's anything in the chat, um, if you would accumulate them and you and I can get back to people. Sure, yes, and, and just so you know, and, and poll three, um, 26 uh, or 87%, 26 out of 30 said yes. Uh, they did take some actionable items. A couple said no. And a couple were unsure. So, um, so with that, um, we have a slide that's on the escheat uh, tax, which is something we may address um, in in future webinars. But unclaimed property or escheat is also 
Um, they, they use those words interchangeably. That's another area. So if you do have uh, questions or would like to hear more about that, please let us know and we'll put that on for a future webinar. Um, but we'd like to thank everybody for attending today's discussion. We encourage you to follow us on social media at GRFCPAs and visit our website at www.grfcpa.com uh, for upcoming events and alerts. Please remember to complete the survey that will appear, appear automatically following this session uh, if you would like to earn CPE. Um, and then again, thank you. Uh, thank you, Karen, for this very informative uh, session. I know we threw a lot at you. The material is really good. It, again, the slide deck will be up uh, on our events page and the recording. Um, so thank you all for participating. And uh, thank you, Karen, again, for this uh, great webinar. And uh, we'll look uh, forward to hearing more from you. Thanks, everybody. It's been a pleasure. Happy to be with you. Thank you for listening to the GRF on the Co podcast. Visit our website at grfcpa.com for more information about the services we provide, the industries we serve, or to request a quote.